Hey guys, welcome to Another World Audiobooks. It's been a while since we've gotten to do an indie author spotlight, but I'm very happy to announce that, well, we're doing one right now. And this is From Men and Angels, the Deliverance Trilogy, book one, from author H.L. Walsh. H.L. Walsh and I got connected on Twitter, as I have with most of the indie authors. Um, so if you don't follow Another World Audiobooks on Twitter, you should probably do that. Uh, a lot of cool stuff going on there. Anyway, H.L. Walsh got in touch with me after I had offered um, to any authors out there to do samples of their work, and he sent me the first uh, three chapters of his book, From Men and Angels. So it's a really cool fantasy fiction type of thing, and it is a trilogy as well. So this book is actually not even available yet, so you're getting a sneak preview to something that is going to be publishing here later this month or next month. Um, all the links will be down below, though, so that you can pre-order the book. So if you get hooked, which I'm assuming you're going to, because it's a pretty cool story, then you're going going to want to go down into the show notes below, click on pre-order, and make sure that you uh, get get your hands on the book as soon as you can. H.L. Walsh is also on Twitter, so that is a great place to keep up with him and see what he's up to. really encourage you to do that. That's why I, I want to do these Indie Author Spotlights to help shed light on people who are creating stuff, because it's not always easy when you're, when you're a creator. It seems like it's kind of hard to get people to pay attention. So that's why I want to do is bring, uh, bring some notice to these uh, awesome indie authors who are doing something they love and putting some something out in the world that they enjoy and hopefully others will too and so without further ado i give you the first chapter of from men and angels from men and angels the deliverance trilogy book one written by h l walsh narrated by brady smith chapter one malik tresh ran through the dense underbrush swiftly and quietly he was in his element it was night and even though these woods were not the woods he grew up in, he did have an idea where he was headed. He also knew it would be easy to get turned around and lost in this forest. His legs ached from running so fast for so long, and he was pulling in ragged gasps of breath. Something was hard on his heels, and he didn't know who or what it was, but it was big, and it scared him so much he didn't have the courage to even look back. He just kept running. Something hard and metal was in his hand, and it was heavy. He looked down to see what it was. It was a peculiar-looking weapon, a short staff with two swords protruding from both ends of a handle, one on each side, so that he could use either side of the staff to stab or cut at, well, at whatever he wanted. It felt good in his hand, balanced, normal, right, like he had used it all his life, and it was just an extension of his body. The only issue was, he had never seen it before. He also had his bow slung over his chest, his side quiver, and a large hunting knife on his belt. Those he recognized. However, as he ran, he realized there were no arrows in the quiver, which was probably why he was carrying the staff weapon instead of his bow, his weapon of choice. All of this only took him seconds to process, and seconds more to realize he had, in fact, gotten lost. He couldn't stop, though. He could hear the monster behind him, breathing as hard as he was, and knew it would be on him at any moment. As scared as he was, he knew he would have to turn and face the creature head-on. He had hoped to outrun it, but knew that had been a mistake now, possibly a fatal one. His mind reeled as it processed what had happened. The creature had dropped down on his platoon and killed half a dozen of them within the span of a few minutes. Fully trained men. Men whom he knew and trusted. Men who had been trained from childhood lay dead, dying, or running like scared rabbits in all directions, all semblance of discipline lost. Malak was no exception. He had looked back and gotten a glimpse of Daziar, standing his ground with his spear and losing his head for it. Malik would never forget the sight of Daziar's head hitting the ground as his body slumped onto its side, the lifeless eyes staring out at nothing. 
That one pause to look back would probably cost Malik his life. He had been spotted by the creature at that moment. He looked it in the eyes, and it was going to kill him. The creature stood well over ten feet tall, mostly black, with large bat-like wings. It stood on two legs to fight, and had large, razor-sharp clawed hands and feet, with spikes sticking out of its elbows and knees. When it spotted Malak, it dropped to all fours and gave a wicked, spike-toothed grin that made Malak's blood run cold. Malak had mentally screamed at his legs to move, and they had finally responded. Now, it was almost on him. He must have run five miles by now, and Malak had a sinking feeling that it was playing with him, staying just behind him to keep the sick game of cat and mouse going. But why? Whatever the reason, Malak was done with it. He wouldn't play this game anymore. He mustered his courage and strength and reached up, grabbing a low-hanging branch, and swung up onto it, climbing swiftly and nimbly up a few more feet, and waited for the creature to run by. He planned to get behind this creature, to become the hunter instead of the hunted, and kill this thing once and for all. Malik forced his breathing to slow and become normal while he waited. He couldn't hear the creature breathing or running anymore, and for a second he thought he might have actually lost it. Then it came into view, as silent as the night. Slow, cautious, like it knew something was not right like it knew that its quarry had changed tactics. It started towards the tree that Malik was hiding in, and he held his breath. He readied his staff weapon and prepared to leap down on top of the giant monster. He prepared for the end. Looking at the creature, he realized that this monster was a demon. The bat-like wings and horns that were visible from the back of the demon's head were unmistakable. Malik knew if the creature turned around, he would be able to see the glowing red eyes staring back at him. His strength almost failed him at the realization. No one had seen a demon in over two thousand years, at least no one he knew about. They were the stuff of legends, something grandparents would tell their grandchildren to make them behave. Malik pulled his thoughts back to the present and the task at hand. He would be the first to kill a demon in over two thousand years, or he would be one of the first to die by its hand. The next few moments would decide that. The demon was almost under him now, and he would have a clear path to drop onto his back and run the blade on his staff through the creature's brain. All of a sudden, the demon snapped its head to the side, or rather turned it almost all the way around behind it without moving his body, as if it heard something that Malik couldn't, and then took off at full speed in the way it had come with a flurry of wind from its wings. Malik didn't dare relax until the sound of its retreat had faded into the night entirely. He sat down heavily on the branch he had been crouching on and let out a sigh of relief. He had to tell someone what he had seen. He had to get out of here before that demon came back. He climbed down from the tree, but before sliding all the way to the ground, he looked around cautiously and listened for any sign that the demon was still around. Hearing and seeing nothing, he dropped soundlessly to the ground and stood upright. He heard a deafening roar at the same time, felt a searing pain in his chest. He was being lifted off the ground. He looked down to see a long black claw protruding from just under his ribcage, blood trickling from around the claw. The beast shook him off into the bushes, like he was no more than something distasteful that had gotten attached to its claw, and stalked off into the night in search of something else to occupy its time, leaving Malik to bleed out in the unfamiliar wounds. Malik woke with a start. He looked around the room he was in. It was his room in the little cottage that belonged to his parents. It was a simple room made of wooden walls. There was a bed with a wooden chest at the foot of it where he kept his clothes, Two pegs in the wall where his bow hung, a square container with the top open that had several fletched arrows sticking out of it. There were also two doors, one leading out to the rest of the cottage, one leading to the washroom. He looked down at his chest. No wound. He tore his shirt over his head to get a look at his bare skin. No, nothing. Not even a scratch. 
He let out a breath he hadn't realized he was holding. Just the dream, he thought, but he still checked his chest again. It had felt so real. The fear, the pain. Even now he could remember every detail of the dream, as if it had been a recent memory, not a nightmare. Malik again checked all over his six-and-a-half-foot, muscular body for any wounds, scrapes, or bruises, but could find nothing that hadn't already been there the night before. Malik was taller than most in his village, standing a head above most men and head and shoulders above most women. With jet-black hair and a darker complexion, he stood out like a sore thumb against the fairer skin and lighter hair of most others in the area. He hated sticking out. The kids growing up had made fun of him for being different, until one took a swing at him, and Malik had beat the bully and his two friends in an unfair fight. The older boys had ganged up on him, and all three had left with multiple bruises and black eyes. Malik didn't mind the verbal attacks. Those could be ignored. However, if someone wanted to do bodily harm to him, or someone he cared about, they would be met with an unyielding and complete defense. More often than not, they would leave wounded in some way or another. Malik, in many ways, had the same childhood as most kids in the area. He had been trained for war from infancy, and taught to handle several weapons proficiently. At age twenty, his body was lean and fit, and even though he had a taller, lankier build than the other boys, he could best them in strength, speed, and agility. Every child was required by law to be trained in the way of combat, from five years old until they were eighteen. After that, they, or more often than not their parents, could choose what they wanted to learn, and many let their fighting skills lapse. This had been set up since the fall of man to sin in the Garden of Eden, when war had come to the earth. When Satan, the lord of the demons, brought his army to earth to cut the race of men, God's creation from the earth, and the hosts of heaven had responded. Since then, demons, angels, and men had been locked in combat for thousands of years. At least, that's what they had been taught. There had been peace for more than two thousand years now, and many questioned if the war was finally truly over. People had a choice to make once they came of age at twenty-one. Side with the demons, or side with the angels. They were required to live in a neutral zone, an area where war was not allowed, for a minimum of two years. After that, they could make their choice if they desired, or stay in that zone. This had been sent up shortly after Cain made his choice and killed Abel, and man joined the ranks of demons to kill the angels and march on heaven's gates themselves, or so the story went. Once that choice was made, there were very few who changed their minds, and Malik wondered if the ones who did convert had ever actually chosen, or if they simply said they did. They had all been taught these stories by their parents. However, for the last two thousand years, there had been no sightings of either angel or demons, and there had been relative peace, aside from the normal crimes of men. This choice had been on Malik's mind since he turned eighteen, and the dreams had started. He was still considered a kid, and he imagined rightly so, since the average person lived to be around seven hundred years old. He was little more than a week from turning twenty-one, and his whole world was being turned upside down. Again. Malik sighed heavily, got up, and went to the washroom. It was a small room with a tub and an elevated basin for a sink. He splashed the room-temperature water on his face to clear his mind. He had lived in this cottage for most of his life, first with his parents until they had died when he was twelve. That was the first time his world was turned upside down, and then returning when he was eighteen to live here on his own. His father and mother were good parents while they lived. They had moved here from a faraway place before he was born. He didn't know where they came from, just that they had settled here to raise him. This town was all he knew. When he was younger, on his days off from training, his father would take him deep into the woods for days at a time, teaching him how to survive. Hunting, trapping, herbs, shelter, and crude weaponry. You name it, and he knew it. A week before his thirteenth birthday, he had gone to Dazia's house for the night. 
Daziar was his best friend, and in many ways the brother he never had. Daziar's birthday was only a couple days away, and they were both going to celebrate their birthdays together. A large storm hit that night, and they had taken shelter with the rest of the town in the underground bunkers that were dug into the ground for just that purpose. He had never worried about his parents, because he knew they would have done the same, but when his parents hadn't come for him, doubt crept in, which led to fear. By the third day, Daziar's parents, Daniel and Janari Woven, had decided to take him back to his cottage that was a few miles out of town. When they got there, the outside of the cottage was almost untouched, but the inside was a wreck. It was as if the storm had hit the inside of the house, not the outside. His parents were nowhere to be found. He didn't understand then, but he knew now that something other than the storm had driven his parents from the house, though there was no evidence as to what. After that, he had stayed the next few days with Daziar, while the villagers had searched the area. They had never found his parents' bodies. They assumed the wild animals had taken them. They held a vigil the next day, since there was nothing to burn at the funeral pyre. The next few days were the hardest of his life. Daziar's parents took him in and treated him as their second son. Daziar had two sisters who were much younger than them. Emmeline, who was now twelve, and Marletta, who was now ten. They had become like Malik's sisters, and he made sure to watch over them. Now Malik lived alone in his cottage, though there were very few nights where he slept at the cottage. Most nights he spent out in the wilderness, even in the winter, finding that more comfortable than any bed. He knew that some of the villagers talked about how odd he was, and spread wild rumors about him being part wolf, or at least was raised by them. The only basis of truth in those rumors was that his closest companion was a wolf. Her name was Skye. He had met her the winter of his fourteenth year. She had sprung one of his traps that was set for a wild dog that had been taking a farmer's sheep. When he had seen her, he knew it wasn't her who had been hunting in the area. She was a ragged, bloody mess. It was hard to tell that she was even a wolf under all the gore that coated her pelt. Malik pulled her out of the trap and took her back to his cottage. He would go up to the cottage every day and feed her by hand and change her bandages. She very nearly died. When she was awake enough to lift her head and look at him, he would talk with her about hunting and whatever else came to mind. He felt that they bonded over that time, which is why he was a little heartbroken when he found one morning that she had left in the middle of the night. He hadn't seen her for two years when he was out one evening at dusk, tracking a doe that had one of his arrows in her. He knew he had made a good shot, but despite that, this doe fought on through the underbrush, seeming to stay just behind him. He had heard a wolf howl to his right, then his left, and a third directly behind him. A hunting pattern. Either Malik or the deer was the prey. He moved then, leaving the trail of the deer, hoping they were hunting the wounded animal for an easy kill. He ran out into a clearing and into the main hunting pack. There were five of them, hackles raised, growling and snarling menacingly. He recognized the scars on the face and side of one of them, and he knew it was the wolf he had saved. He had saved her just to be killed and eaten by her, hopefully in that order. He notched an arrow. He wouldn't go down without a fight. He drew and took aim at the scarred wolf, but just before he fired, she leaped onto the wolf closest to her, tearing at its jugular. The other wolves were caught off guard, and Malik let loose his arrow into another's chest as it turned to attack Sky. The arrow dropped it immediately, and Malik notched a second with practiced ease. He never got the chance to fire it, as the other two wolves fled, not wanting to end up like their companion. Malik burned the wolves' bodies, as he would have any humans, with reverence and silence, while Sky looked on. Since then, she had stayed with him, but was by no means his wolf. She was her own creature, and would do as she pleased. He tried several names before she chose Skye. She was a large wolf with her head coming up to his waist. The name Skye fit her. She had almost a blue tent to her fur, with silver mixed in. 
She had three long scars where no hair grew. They started small at her snout and grew wider as they went down her left side at an angle. They finally stopped at her left flank. She looked fierce and rugged, and Malik didn't blame people for being afraid of her. She was, however, quite gentle, and in fact good with children. She would even let the small children ride on her back for a few moments. Malik thought often that they were much alike, and he liked the companionship she brought when she was around. She would also hunt with him, bringing most kills to him, letting him dress the animal before taking her portion. Malik always gave her the choice meat for her kills. After all, she did the work for it, and let him take the fur to sell. This was their relationship, mutual trust, respect, and loyalty. Even Daziar got used to having her around when they would spend time together. Malik moved back out of his room, peeled his sweaty leather breeches off, and let his legs dry. He moved out to his pantry to find something to eat. He grabbed an apple and a strip of dried meat and tore into them hungrily. He heard someone call the meat jerky and say it was all the rage in the big cities up north. Malik had been drying his meat for years. It helped it last much longer, and if you seasoned it with salt and some of the edible plants in the area, it tasted rather good. It was one of his best-selling meats, and he could make it out of the lesser cuts that people didn't want as much. It had done wonders for his trade. He guessed the areas that were farther north could use the ice and snow year-round to preserve meat. As far as he knew, no one had settled that far north yet. Brightwood was as far north in the known world that had been settled. There was a sudden and insistent knock on the door that jarred Malik out of his thoughts and back to reality. He realized he was wearing just his underwear, and he had an uninvited visitor, possibly someone who had come to ask for his services. He jumped up from the little table he had sat down at and rushed to his room. Just a minute! He called as he went. He grabbed the first pair of pants he could find and pulled them on. They were covered in old animal blood. He winced. That wouldn't be a great first impression, and he'd look barbaric. Realistically, though, how many new clients did he get? Too late now, he thought to himself. He moved quickly to the door and pulled it open. It was a rather nervous-looking man, although who wouldn't be nervous under the watchful eyes of Skye, who was laying as non-threateningly as a four-foot-tall muscular wolf with nasty-looking scars could lay. When the man saw Malik in his blood-streaked pants and chiseled upper body, his courage just about failed him. To his credit, he didn't run, just stood up a little straighter. Malik took in the man at a glance. He was a skinny man with fair skin and a soft face. The man was tall, but not as tall as Malik. He wore a tailored suit that was ill-fitted for the hike the man had to take to get here. He was either a rich man or someone who was used to being rich. Malik knew this man was not from the town or the surrounding area. He tried to flash a very disarming smile and broke the silence. "'Good morning, friend. How are you this brisk autumn morning?' Malik said, in a purposely cordial and proper voice. He smiled again. "'Um, fine, thanks,' the man managed to stutter out. There was an uncomfortable silence as each one waited for the other to talk. Malik was again forced to break the silence. "'Can I help you with something?' "'Oh, er, yes, um... My family and I just moved into the area. The man finally got out, and his accent stood out like a sore thumb. He was definitely not from around here. We're starting a farm on the south side of town. I was told this was where to find the best hunter in the land. Uh, is your father home? Malik bristled. Sir, do you think me too young to be the best hunter in the land? He said, echoing the man's words. He continued without letting the man speak. I am who you want. My late father taught me much in the short time he had, and I've only added to that knowledge since he passed. Malik could tell the man was caught off guard once again. They sent me to a boy? He asked, as if Malik wasn't there. They sent you to the best hunter in the land? 
Malik was starting to get angry now and a little hurt. If you wanted someone older, you should have gone to the tavern in town. The older hunters will be there getting drunk off their wages. When you want someone who actually knows what they're doing, you can come back and be a little more cordial. Malik went to slam the door, but the stranger got a boot between it and the jam, stopping it from shutting. Please, excuse my rudeness and careless words, the stranger apologized. I simply was told the best hunter would be here. I was not told your age. I trust the word of the man who sent me, and your age will not be a problem for me. Malik opened the door again, still peeved at the man. Who sent you? The general store owner. As I understand it, you have done work for him in the past and done a good job, he replied. I've done work for almost everyone in this area, Malik said, and then asked, Are you kin to anyone around here? The man continued, My brother has a farm on the east side of town. His name is Arjun Ribella. He has a daughter around your age. Her name is Honora. Oh. It was Malik's turn to be a little taken aback. You're Arjun's brother? You look nothing alike. Yes, well, he got all the muscles in the family, and he was never one to slow down, the man mused. But where are my manners? My name is Jekram, Jekram Raybella, and like I said, my wife and I are settling into a farm on the south side of town. We are needing someone to come and hunt something that has been taking our animals. We are just getting started, you know, and can't afford to lose too many. I'm Malik. Are you and your wife going to be handling and living at the farm? Again, Malik couldn't keep the surprise out of his voice. Unfortunately, yes. Jekram seemed a little put out at that. Our third brother, the oldest, spent most of our wealth, and now it would seem I've almost run out as well. We are having to start this farm so that we can live. Malik looked at the man. He said the word farm in such distaste that, personally, Malik didn't care for the man at all. But he was the brother of a good man, and on that merit alone, Malik would take the job. I'll take the job. My terms are that I take the fur and meat of any animal caught, unless you pay a fair price for it, and I charge two copper coins per animal. Malik knew he could probably ask for more, but that was the price he gave everyone else. If you need a trade instead of paying coin, we can discuss a trade when the job is finished. Also, I will not pay for any damage done by any animal to your land or property. Malik put his hand out to shake on the deal. Jekram looked at Malik's proffered hand and then back up at Malik. You don't want anything in writing? He asked. A man's word is his bond around here, Malik warned him. If you break the trust, word spreads fast in a small town. People will be less likely to deal with you the more that trust is broken. I will meet you tomorrow morning at your farm. Duly noted. Jekram took Malik's hand and they shook on it. Do you know where my farm is? As I said, word spreads fast in a small town, and I already know where the old farm south of town is. Malik pulled his hand back. Now, I must begin my day. Too much daylight has burned already. Jekram looked confused for a moment and then took a step back from the door. Very well. Tomorrow morning, then. Good day. Jekram turned, jumped at the sight of Sky again, and hurried off almost at a run as she loosed a playful growl at him. Sky? Malik reprimanded. I know you have to give off your persona of vicious and dangerous, but you don't have to scare all my customers. She came over to him, and he squatted a little to be on eye level with her. She looked him once in the face. All right, all right, I forgive you. Malik chuckled and scratched behind her ears. I have to get dressed now. Have you eaten breakfast? He looked around her to see the remnants of an animal she had killed and eaten. I guess so, and you didn't even leave any for me. He pushed her hand to the side playfully. 
She excitedly growled and nipped at him in response. With this, Malik changed to a fresh pair of pants and pulled a brown wool shirt over his head. He grabbed the belt with his knife and quiver still attached and put it on. Some archers preferred their quiver to be attached to a sash on their back, but Malik much preferred it by his side. When the quiver was attached at the back, it required a half-quiver, or one would never be able to pull the arrows. Unfortunately, that means if they had to run, they were more likely to lose their arrows. No, the side-quiver was the way to go. The draw was much more fluid, and the new arrow could be drawn much faster without the danger of losing them if the archer had to move to a new cover or tactically retreat. After he strapped on his belt, he moved to the wall where his bow hung, strung it, and set it against the wall next to the arrow container. He selected three arrows from their wooden holder and checked that they were still in good firing condition and put them into his quiver. He was good to go. He grabbed the rest of his uneaten breakfast and headed out the door, pulling it shut behind him. Skye was waiting, and Malik could swear she had an impatient look on her face. Skye didn't like going in any building, even for a few minutes, though she would make exceptions sometimes. Malik never tried to make her either. It was against her nature to do that. She had a cave nearby that no one knew about. She slept there when it was too cold or too hot for her liking. All right, girl, I'm ready, he told her, and she fell into step with him. Today was Malik's day for a supply run into town. He headed for his cart. It wasn't big, just a small, simple thing that used manpower. He didn't have a horse or mule, just his own two legs and sky, but she would never stand to be hooked up to it. Going down into the valley wasn't the hard part. Getting back up to the cottage with all the supplies he needed would be the challenge. The path was just a worn, winding trail and had a few potholes in it, but Malik made sure they never got too large. Malik had been slowly making the trail straighter. As he needed firewood, he would select the next tree that was in the way and fell it with his saw. Then he would cut it into small pieces, and he would haul it back up to his house to split and burn it for heat. It was a bit of work, but he hadn't found one that he couldn't cut down yet. As Malik grabbed the cart, he threw his pack and bow onto the cart and started down the hill. The cart had four short wooden walls to it, with one side that slid in on grooves. This was so he could load it easily and then secure the back so the cargo didn't fall out while he was rolling it uphill. Skye jumped in the back and lay down, placing her head between her legs. She looked at him. He feigned exasperation with her and said, setting the cart down and turning to look at her. Really? First you make me do all the work, and now you're going to make me carry you too. You've gone too far this time. He wagged a finger at her nose. I have a mind to turn this cart around, young lady. She just snorted at him and closed her eyes. Fine, you just stay there and see if you get any of Mr. Raybella's honeycomb candy. At this, Skye's ears perked up and she opened one eye at him. That's right, you heard me. We are headed to the Raybella's farm, and if you aren't nice to me, I won't buy you any candy. This will be the last batch of the season, you know. It will be too cold for his bees soon if it isn't already. Sky growled menacingly at him, as if to say, You wouldn't dare. Malik continued, undaunted by what would sound to most people as anger in the wolf's growl. Oh yes, you just remember who is holding the coin purse around here, but... He let the last word hang in the air for a second for dramatic effect. I guess you can stay in there on the trip down. Just not on the way back. You're getting too fat for that. She jumped to her feet in indignation and barked once in his ear. All right, all right, I meant muscular. Don't get your tail in a knot. Malik chuckled as Sky huffed once more and flopped down, jarring the cart. Malik plodded along in silence, leaving him to his own thoughts and plans for the day. As they came out of the trees onto the open, they could see the town down in the valley about a mile away. They could even see tiny people moving around within the tall, wooden walls, going about their normal day. This was Brightwood. There were too many people for Malik's liking, even though it was just a small town. 
With a population of a couple hundred people residing within the walls, it was one of the smallest towns in Angel territory. Around Brightwood, there was a large wooden wall about twice as tall as Malik. They had catwalks on the inside of the walls for guards to walk around, unseen by any enemy looking at the wall from below. Although those walkways haven't seen a guard on them in well over a thousand years, mostly they are used by lovers and children, taking a leisurely romantic walk under the starlight or used in some game, respectively. Malik lived on the Angel side of the Divide. The Divide was a large valley between the Demon and Angel territory. It was where the first battle between Angels and Demons was said to have been fought. This valley formed a V toward the northern sides of the continent and had a landmass in the middle of the valleys. This natural formation of the land gave them an obvious area to put the neutral city. On the demon side of this neutral ground was a swamp. Malik had heard a few stories about it, but not many that he would believe. On the angel side was some gently sloping hills where the farmers would take their livestock. Malik caught movement ahead, which pulled him from his thoughts. There was something else on the road, something unseen by those in the city. Three bandits waylaid some poor traveller that had happened along this way unawares. Malik immediately backed into the woods, as to not be spotted, and sent down his cart. Sky lifted a hand at the sudden jolting and jostling. Malik put a finger to his lips and pointed along the road. He held up three fingers in front of her face and whispered, Highwaymen. Sky's hackles raised. She was genuinely upset this time. He stopped her from charging in and motioned for her to follow as he grabbed his bow. There were some bushes along the side of the road, and he used them for cover, pushing his quiver around his belt so that it rested on top of his butt as he crawled low on his stomach behind the underbrush. He finally got to where he could hear voices and chanced to peek between two of the bushes. There were definitely three of them, big, burly men, all armed with a number of weapons, but Malik didn't see an archer among them. He could probably take a decent shot from here, but he wanted to get a little closer in case things went south. He continued crawling to the end of the bushes, and he could just make out the voices. They were raised and angry. Probably whoever had waylaid was not cooperating. That was good and bad. Good because it took them longer to steal whatever they were after, so Malik could line his shot up without having to rush things. Bad because the highwaymen would be getting angry, and they don't think particularly well when they were angry. Malik might have to kill one, maybe even two for them to survive the encounter. It also put the innocent man at risk when things got serious. Malik peered through the bushes as he notched an arrow and judged the distance to the highwayman who had his back turned to Malik. Then, one of them drew their sword. So much for getting to line on my shot, Malik thought ruefully. He stood up, drew back his bow, and let it fly. The arrow zipped through the air, just grazing the ear of the thug standing with his back to Malik, and embedded itself in the shoulder of the man who had drawn his sword on the traveller. It caught everyone by surprise, and stopped the man's attack cold. All four men turned to look at Malik, the two uninjured highwaymen drawing their swords. Malik already had a second arrow notched and the bow drawn. Now, I could have killed any one of you I wanted, but I took a wounding shot. Malik called to them. Sky growled next to him for extra emphasis. He continued, I could easily change my mind to put both of you down before you could make it to me. The highwaymen looked at each other. I suggest you sheathe your weapons, drop those belts, and walk away, Malik called. The two uninjured bandits were more than happy to oblige and started backing up. Wait! The third bellowed at them, and they paused in their retreat. He was obviously the leader. This loser can't stop us all. Why are you backing down? The leader then spun the traveller around and put the sword to the man's throat. Now, drop your weapon and back off. Malik saw the traveller was, in fact, Jekram, and started to lower his bow. The bandit took his eyes off Malik for a second to look triumphantly at his comrades, who had stopped moving. Malik snapped the bow back into place, drew and released the arrow with one swift, fluid motion. 
The arrow flew, and as the bandit returned his focus to Malik, the arrow pierced through his left eye. The man screamed, dropped his sword, clutched the arrow, and fell to his knees. Malik notched his third and final arrow, but it was a needless action as the two bandits that had dropped their weapons ran for it. The third one got up and started running as well, but he had a harder time seeing where he was going and stumbled several times as he ran. Malik put the arrow away and moved forward to the shaken Jekram. Are you alright? Malik asked, not looking at Jekram, but examining the weapon and belts that had been left behind. Jekram didn't respond. Nothing spectacular, though there were a few silver coins in one of the purses still attached to the belt. He collected those and put them away in his own coin purse. He picked up the best of the swords and tossed it at the still-stunned Jekram. It landed at his feet, bounced once, and smacked into his shins. That seemed to snap him out of his silence. What? You shot him? He stammered. Yep, Malik replied calmly. Didn't give me much of a choice, did he? You could have killed me! Jekram raised his voice, suddenly shouting. Anger boiled in Malik's stomach, but he pushed it down, opting for the calmer response. A simple thank you would suffice. Thank you? Now Jackram was shouting. If you ever point that thing at me again, I'll go to the local authorities and report you. Malik couldn't stop the angry reply this time. He stood up and advanced on the hapless man who seemed to shrink. I saved your life, technically twice, in the span of a few moments. Next time I'll just leave you to them. Oh, and good luck finding the local authorities. The only person keeping the peace around here is you and me. He motioned to the sword still on the ground at Jekram's feet. You would be smart to take that sword and get someone to retrain you to use it. Who does this guy think he is, a king? Malik thought in disgust. Malik grabbed the rest of his stuff off the ground and headed back towards his cart. Sky fell into step with him, shooting a venomous look toward Jekram. Jekram quickly pulled up the sword and ran to catch up. You're not going to just leave me out here alone, are you? I don't make it a habit to keep cowards as company, Malik retorted, still seething inside and not slowing down even one bit. He made it to the cart, and Skye jumped back in, but didn't lay down. Instead, she stared Jekram down. What if they come back? He stopped short of the cart, watching Skye. Malik said nothing. I apologize for what I said earlier. Jekram tried, seeming to calm down a bit. There he goes. Apologizing again, Malik thought. I was scared, and it was rude of me. Let me pay for your trouble. Jekram reached for his coin purse, which jingled loudly. It was full of coins. I don't want your money. That's what made you a target in the first place, Malik said. He really didn't want any of Jekram's money. Don't you know, only to carry a small amount of coin with you? I... Jekram started to say something, but the words died in his mouth. He let his breath out and inhaled again. His voice was better under control when he spoke again. To tell the truth, I don't know much about the rules of this land. I am used to living in a city with men whose job is to keep the peace. Please, let me at least replace the arrows you lost when that brute fell. Fine, Malik replied. He still wasn't happy with the man, but would let the matter drop. If that's what you wish, I'll accept, though I make my own shafts and fletching. All I need is the arrowheads. Then you'll have a half dozen of the best heads the blacksmith makes. Jekram beamed at him as if they were the best of friends. Malik sighed and pulled the cart out of where he had hidden it before. Sky lay down so she wouldn't have to balance on the moving cart. However, she was not relaxed as before, but watched Jekram. He could tell she really didn't trust his new traveling companion. They walked almost half the distance to the city before Jekram couldn't take the silence anymore. So, may I ask you a question? He asked warily. 
I can't stop you, Malik replied tersely. He hoped the man wasn't going to try and pry into his past. He didn't necessarily have a hard time talking about it, he just didn't want to get into it with Jekram in particular. I don't promise an answer, though. That's fair, Jekram replied and looked over at him curiously. Why didn't you kill the bandit? What would that have accomplished? Malik asked. Well, he started. For one, there would be one last bandit in the world, but I think it would have been a more strategically sound action. Malik thought about what he should tell the man. He decided to play with him. I would have to bury him if I killed him, he stated flatly, or at least drag him from the road. Jekram's jaw dropped, and he openly gaped at Malik. What did you think I was going to say? Something like, everyone deserves a second chance, or I couldn't take another man's life? Malik said in a mocking tone. As a matter of fact, yes. He was still shocked. I'm not sure if he did deserve another chance, Malik explained. He had his chance to leave and didn't take it when the other two did. They will think twice before they try something like that again. Besides, not many men change their ways once they are set. So, your reason for not killing the man was truly so you would not have to deal with the body? Jekram asked, verbally pushing for the true answer. The truth is that I don't take a life unless there is a need. I knew he would not kill you once he had enough incentive not to. He was a coward. Malik set the card down and turned to look at the man in the eyes. His kind prey on the weak, projecting strength by making his prey cower under his presumed power. He, in fact, is weaker than the men he preys on. I saw it in his eyes. When someone comes along who stands up to him, he will hide behind someone else. What I've learned is that you can't trust anyone to protect you, willing or otherwise. There is always a way around them. Malik flexed his hand before picking up the cart, and they started moving toward the city. Once they see they aren't safe as they perceive they are, they will flee. While we are being truthful, though, I missed. I had intended to scare him, which is what happened, but I intended to scare him by taking a small chunk out of his ear. This drew a small shocked look from Jekram, and he opened his mouth to object, but shut it without any sound coming out. Good, the man is learning to think before he speaks, Malik thought. Luckily for him, I didn't pull my full draw, or we wouldn't be burying a body, Malik mused. They walked for a while in silence once again, Jekram obviously mulling over what had been said. When they had gotten to within a stone's throw of the main gate of the town, Jekram spoke again to Malik, this time a bit more curious. How is someone your age so full of wisdom? Malik said nothing to this. He didn't want to explain his past to this man. Malik had great parents who taught him a lot before they passed, including the value of life. However, he had done a lot of growing up in the years that he was on his own, and had decided for himself what he believed and how to live. He supposed he had grown up more than many his age, though he never thought about it much. They passed through the gates in silence, and it seemed like Jekram had decided to drop the subject. He turned toward the blacksmith's shop, even though that was not originally going to be his first stop. He wanted to be rid of Jekram and his questions. As they approached the blacksmith's shop, Jekram tried to pry once again. So, where are your parents? Dead. Malik replied shortly, and refused to say anything else to the man's many questions that followed. Alright, there you have it. We're coming at you tomorrow with another episode. Actually going to be doing three episodes of this book, so you'll get the sample in three chunks. Boom, 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 one right after the other. So first one today, next one tomorrow, and the other the day after that. So stay tuned to make sure you update your 
podcast feed to get those. And uh, yeah, if you're enjoying this, please, I would love it if you would let A.J. Walsh know. You can do that by uh, sending him a tweet. The uh, link to his social media profile is down below. Uh, or pre-ordering his book. That would probably be the best way and uh, would just really support the indie author community and what everyone is doing out there. So thanks so much for listening today, guys. We'll talk to you tomorrow.